want to introduce uh, a good friend, a mentor, a pastor. Um, he's the bishop over the organization I am a part of. I talk to you a lot about all the activities that we do, not only on a spiritual level, but also uh, helping to shift uh, the political landscape uh, to make sure that they don't forget that we believe in God. And when we say in God we trust, we really do. And there's a lot that uh, Bishop is involved in. And uh, I just uh, appreciate the fact that he's here today. So let's all stand and let's welcome uh, Bishop Joseph Matera as he comes and shares the word of the Lord with us. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What a blessing to be here. Incredible sense of God's presence and family and this is the way church ought to be, the way it is here. And so God has really blessed you. You have great leaders here. I've known Apostle uh, Nosario since the early 1990s and saw the incredible work he did for the whole city, helping to unite the city and uh, organizing the huge uh, event at Promise Keepers in Shea Stadium in 1996, I think it was, in 95 which uh, he was the operational manager. Uh, he was able to pull off a, an incredible endeavor there. And that was the most ethnically mixed assembly of churches that we had ever seen in the city. Uh, most churches are either all black, all white, all Hispanic, all Chinese. And that event was an amazing salad bowl of who the people of God are in this city. And so your pastor was the one who actually managed and organized all the logistics for that event, uh, as well as other things like the March for Jesus and the fact that he's willing to work uh, and uh, not take a salary. I, there's not too many pastors who would have a church this size that would not be full-time. To be able to manage a church this size and work a full-time job is quite an amazing attribute, which means that your pastor just has great leadership, organizational skills. He's not just a preacher. Um, and uh, most pastors who have a bivocational calling uh, have a very difficult time getting the church past 20 or 30 people because it's just between job demands of 12 hours a day and family, you just don't have any energy to do anything else. So it's quite amazing that uh, you guys have grown as much as you have. Uh, you, I remember when, you know, your church uh, building burnt down and many pastors would have thrown the towel after that. So he also has amazing uh, capacity to endure and know that God's calling is what matters, nothing else. And once you move into that building, get ready. You're probably going to have three or four services within a few years. And as the uh, apostle was telling you, the big difference between being a renter and an owner. And so uh, it's going to take a lot of work from all of you to not only do the simple things like maintenance and repairs and uh, all of that, but also just uh, making sure that you guys just keep up with everything and all the new people that are going to come in. Oftentimes, when you have your own building, your attendance goes up by 10% just in the first year uh, with a new location. So you're going to have more people that you're going to care for, and God's going to give you more strategic vision on what to do for the next three to five years. So it's not just the physical building that is a sign from God and you have been proven trustworthy enough as stewards of what you have, and now he's telling you, bringing you to the next level. So that's just only the beginning of greater things that God has, and the next generation is going to reap the rewards of all the sacrifices that all of you have put into this work. And so I remember I was meeting with a group of young Evangelical leaders, they planted churches six or seven years ago, and some of them have quite large churches in Manhattan. And I started working with some of them. And uh, one guy has about 5,000 people already. They opened up a church a year ago. 
Um, and I remember uh, we were going around the room. It was like three or four or five of us, whatever. We were meeting. And uh, <laughs> when it came to me and I told them I've been pastoring for 28 years, they almost fell over. People don't have a concept of longevity anymore. Young people are uh, used to leaving a church or moving from one city to the next every three years, uh, especially in that community. And they were totally, totally shocked. So the fact that your church has almost three decades under its belt and you're going to the next level is also an incredible sign of God's favor because to be able to pastor, to have a church that's effective and go to the next level with all the trials and all the disappointments and tests and spiritual warfare shows that God is with you. Uh, God is with you. I've had to deal with so many, many pastors and crises and different things, and I've seen churches go from 1,000 to 50 people in six months. The size of the church isn't what is important. What's important is the infrastructure. Are you stable? Is there commitment to longevity, to the next generation? Uh, is there true discipleship taking place? Many people are building crowds, not churches. So what you have here, if you examine the book of Acts and the epistles, you really have a real church. This is what church is all about. Some of these other places um, are great. They're called of God, but they're not models of local church because the people don't even know each other. There is really no intimate fellowship and community and family of families. It's just coming to hear a good worship or word experience, and then they go home. So that, that's good, but it's not exactly what we call church. Uh, it's just more of an evangelistic or teaching center. It probably feeds other churches and, and unintentionally. But what you guys have here is incredible. So just thank God for it. Continue to pray for your pastors and your leaders. Uh, because they go through the same kind of challenges that you have at home with their kids, uh, their marriage, uh, different things that go on. They're not exempt. Uh, just because they pastor a church doesn't mean that they don't have family problems, marital tensions, issues at home, issues with finances or, you know, with kids, grandchildren, all this stuff. They have the same, sometimes even more, because of all the pressure. So you really need to lift them up and pray and fast and pray for them. There should always be an intercessory team raised up in every church assigned specifically just for the pastor and the family uh, and just covering them constantly, constantly, constantly. Because as they go, so do you. Because our destiny is wrapped up in a local church. It's not just individual destiny. It's not just... Well, what's my vision? I've seen a lot of people with great gifts and talent, and they never did anything in God because they never stayed in one local church. They tried to accomplish God's calling just by their own gifts, and they never stayed settled. There was no church that was good enough for them, and they never got anywhere. It tells us in Psalm 92, they who are planted in the house of the Lord will bear fruit even in old age. You keep on taking the seed out of the ground and you're not committed to one place. It doesn't matter if it has the potential to be the largest and strongest oak tree in the world. If you take that oak tree seed out, if you take out the, uh, the apple seeds, if you take out the seed from the ground every uh, few days or every month or so, it's never going to have enough time to develop and reach its potential. And so... Sometimes the most important thing you could do is stay in the same place and continue to grow. Uh, every church has its ups and downs, its seasons. I remember one time uh, as I was preaching in a particular church, um, uh, a lady came up to me and I said, what are you doing here? Because I knew her for many years because she was in another church. But I said, what are you doing here? She said, well... There was too much spiritual warfare in that other church. I said, so? And I'm thinking to myself, if you don't have spiritual warfare, you're not doing anything for God. Uh, so uh, 
I said, so what are you doing here? She said, well, because this church is so stable, uh, it has the peace of God, and everything's just going really well. And I was laughing to myself because I was just on the phone with the pastor the day before or a few days before that, and he was telling me that his wife is pulling her hair out because the choir is fighting with the Sunday school, is fighting with the maintenance. Uh, he doesn't know what to do, and it's problems in the church and he can't sleep at night and i'm thinking to myself she's going to this church she's jumping from the frying pan into the fire every church that is progressive and that was a good church too is going to have spiritual warfare you're going to have tests every marriage is going to have tests every family is going to have tests so it's it's not about trying to find a place where there are no struggles it's being faithful with what god has given you it's not about how many programs the church has. The main question you have to ask yourself is, who is my spiritual father? Because it's the DNA you're supposed to carry to the next generation that comes from a particular person that is going to be that father and that mother to bring you up in the Lord. And if you don't have that proper covering and DNA, uh, there are a lot of good families out there, but I'm the one called to raise my kids. You know, they could, well, I want to become uh, the son and daughter of another family because uh, they have more money or they have a better backyard or they have a, you know, a bigger TV. That's how some Christians are. They have a better program here. No. Who's your daddy? That's the question you ask. And that's where you belong. So I've learned through the years a lot of these things because uh, of the school of hard knocks. As Paul said, I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some because of my own foolishness and some because of just being in this world and serving God. So uh, I appreciate this church and I, this apostle who has stood with me and has been one of the main leaders in Christ's Covenant Coalition is also one of the uh, three board of trustees or four board of trustees that we have. So he's one of my most trustworthy and faithful uh, men. Uh, that we talk about uh, a, a lot of important, vital decisions. So he not only has an impact in this local church, but he's impacting a lot of the body of Christ because of what Christ's Covenant Coalition is doing, which, by the way, uh, not that I intended on saying this, but this Tuesday night, one of the expressions of Christ's Covenant is City Action Coalition, which has been a political and social movement from CCC that started in 2004 and this Tuesday night we're launching another uh, public launch uh, Br uh, Bethel Tabernacle Gospel Tabernacle in Jamaica Queens we're gonna have a lot of people coming out uh, we're praying for our city and we're launching a political movement a prayer movement and a leadership institute all in one and there are different pastors that are leading that Pastor Fernando Cabrera is leading the political movement. He's a city councilman. Uh, Apostle Luis Vargas is leading the Leadership Institute. And Matt Bennett from Christian Unions leading the prayer movement. So we have some uh, three major leaders and then many, it's, many other leaders are going to come under the umbrella of City Action Coalition. And so we have a 10-year plan to put a new generation of leaders in public office and we're hoping one day we're going to put the mayor in office. That's what our goals are. Why shouldn't the mayor be a Christian? So we're putting people in office. We're going to try to change the landscape of the city council, state senate, state assembly. Uh, we're not sitting around as our nation and our city goes down the tubes. So we are involved in a lot of different things. What I'm going to teach today basically comes out of this book, Walking Generational Blessings. I have about... I have four books, and my website, I normally bring a sheet of paper that you could give me your email address. If somebody wants to do that, you could do that. Just name and email address, and we could subscribe you. But um, uh, I don't even know who joins. I just give it to my assistant, and he puts it up. Uh, but we have 90 countries that receive this free teaching, thousands of leaders, and a lot of pastors are using the material for leadership development. So my, my name, Joseph Matera. M-A-T-T-E-R-A, Joseph, and then M-A-T-T-E-R-A dot org, O-R-G. 
So www.josephmatera.org. And you could subscribe on the top right, and you'll get free teachings. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great, great church. We thank you, Father, for everything you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What I want to speak about, and I'm not sure how many of you could see this, but you can hear this, is six steps to biblical dominion. Six steps. And when we talk about dominion, we're referring to the word in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. I'm not here to preach because you get great preaching here all the time anyway. I'm here to teach. So you could take notes. You could get the CD um, or, and buy the book too. Because the book has a lot, a lot of stuff. And it's causing a revolution of sorts all over the world. It just came back from Africa, Brazil, Atlanta, different places, and the book is just making a huge, huge impact, changing what we call the paradigm, the thinking of, 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 of leaders. So I'm going to quote these passages. I'm not taking time to read out of the Bible because we don't have a lot of time. So in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, it has six steps that lead to what we call dominion. And dominion, we don't mean by dominion forcing people to convert like the Muslims uh, have done. Uh, we don't force, we don't mean to even change the law and make people believe like us. The New Testament equivalent to dominion is when Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist and washed the feet of his disciples. So the church that washes the feet of their community which means to meet the needs, the practical needs of the community, is the church that will lead. Because once you meet their needs, they will beg you to lead. I've learned a long time ago, someone becomes a Christian, and they're in the church for about a year, and just hearing the word is enough for them to grow. But after that, they get bored. And they complain, oh, I'm not getting fed. Why? Why did he feel that way? Between a year and maybe sometimes three years. It's because if you don't start serving, you're going to stop getting fed. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. James said, it's not the hearers, but the doers of the word that are blessed. You're not going to get blessed if you don't volunteer and serve in your community or in the church or both. Uh, because God wants us to put the word into practice. And so... As we wash the feet of a community, we're like Jesus, who didn't only preach, but he multiplied the bread. He healed the sick. He met the physical needs of people, not only preach. And so healing can take the form of not just through signs and wonders, but it could be starting a charter school, helping in a hospital, whatever. You're meeting the physical needs. Jesus said they will know that you are my believers or my disciples because you have love and that any way it could be, be expressed is the greatest witness of the gospel and so we want to talk about six steps that lead to this kind of influence in genesis chapter 1 verse 27 uh, god says that he made man in his own image in the image of god made he them both male and female made, made he them Someone say male and female. So it takes a man and a woman to reflect God's image in the earth. Whether it's a business, whether it's a family, whether it's a church, you would be foolish just to get a man's perspective. You need to get a male and female perspective and get them involved in leadership in order to reflect God's image on the earth. And so the first step to biblical dominion is male and female. That's uh, Genesis 1.27, male and female. And the greatest expression of male and female in the image of God is marriage. Somebody say marriage. It takes both a male and a female to reflect God's image. And marriage is the only union 
in which they become one flesh. Right? So that is the greatest expression of God's image in the earth. There's nothing that comes close. Marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 actually is a type of Christ's love for the church. And in Revelation chapter 19, when we are in heaven forever, one of the first things that's going to happen after everything is finished, time is no more on the earth, is something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be united with our husband. So the church is God's bride. So marriage is somehow or another connected to the gospel so intrinsically, so reflective of who God is with his people that it is the greatest expression of God's image in the earth. Marriage came before there was human government, which started in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood where God told Noah, um, if anyone murders a man, you have the right to shed their blood because the image of God made he them. And so he gave human beings a right for human government for the first time. Before that, God was the one. You took somebody out, he'd take you out right away. Starting Genesis 9, he started human government. Before there was a church, before there was human government, before there was a nation of Israel, and even before there was a law of Moses, there was marriage. So marriage is the first institution God started with, which means that marriage is the foundation of civilization. A church can have thousands of members, but a church's health is determined by the health of their marriages because a church is a family of families. So as our dear sister was sharing, you know, she has all these people from the church around her. Why? Because the church is a family. We're to be a father to the fatherless. We're to be uh, uh, what widows and orphans need. We ought to take the kids in. We ought to be an extended family. If there's a single mom, their sons don't have a father at home, well, some of the men could be like big brothers. Uh, so we are a family of families. And the greatest sign of the health of a church is the health of their marriages. So it's so important that we start off with marriage. You could have 3,000 people in your church, but if everybody's getting a divorce, there's a lot of cohabitation, there's no commitment, there's no marriage ministry, that church really is hollow. It's like a tree that is 100 feet tall, and then you go near it, and there's nothing inside of it. It's about to fall down. So having that infrastructure, that discipleship pattern, and strong marriages uh, is the key. And so the first step to biblical dominion is marriage. So then he says to this couple, oh, I can't wait. I can't move off this point. I have to say something about a pet peeve of mine, which isn't really a pet and not even a peeve. It's a major issue. We have led the fight against same-sex marriage since, 19, since 2003 in New York City. And it was one of the most devastating days of my life when the governor forced, made like he's a mafioso and forced the votes. And there's a reason why he was able to do that, which we won't get into. Um, and changed the law. Didn't let the people vote because they don't want the people to vote. They want to tell you because you're too stupid to know what's right. So these few elite people want to tell us what's best for society. In 31 states, when they let the people vote, every time the people overwhelmingly rejected same-sex marriage. Six states in the Northeast have same-sex marriage. Never once has it ever been that the people voted it in. So what does that have to do with this? Well, as I said, it takes both a male and a female to reflect God's image. Satan doesn't want God's image because God's image brings God's dominion on the earth. And so if two men are raising a boy, which, by the way, it's impossible for two of the same sex to have children, so they have to have artificial insemination or they have to adopt. If two men raise a boy, then it's an insult to all mothers in the world because you're saying that these kids don't need a mother. And I don't care how effeminate one of those men act, he's not a mother. Uh, and then you have two women raising a boy or raising a girl. You're saying they don't need a father. And 
not only is it biblical, there's so much sociological data. The most latest data, Professor Mark Regeman, he's come up with the most comprehensive study ever done showing the economic, the emotional, the financial impact on children who are raised by two men or two women. It's devastating. And so the, the healthiest kids are raised by a male and a female committed to one another in marriage. Why? It's not an accident because the Bible says that that is God's image. And Satan is trying to thwart God's image in the earth. Two men and two women raising children reflects only part of God's image and not the kind that they need for the emotional and spiritual support uh, to, to uh, raise their family. And so that's the first step. The second step, and by the way, theologians call these two passages, uh, a fancy words called the cultural commission. Cultural commission. We have the great commission in Mark 16 and Matthew 28, which is going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creation, all of creation. This is the cultural commission. That means this is the reason why God made human beings to affect all of society, all of culture. So if you want to know why you were born, you weren't born just to come here and have a good time on Sunday. Uh, there are a lot of Christians that say, well, I can't wait until Sunday. I'm glad you love church, but you should enjoy what you're doing on Monday to Saturday. You're called as much to the marketplace as you are to the church, and you're going to see that in a moment. Uh, hopefully by the time I'm finished, I'll be able to make a small contribution in the way you're thinking in terms of why you were born. But we have to understand that we were not born just to come to church on Sunday. This is what's called the cultural commission because we have been called by God to bring dominion to the whole earth, God's dominion. And so it says he made a male and female. That's number one. Number two, Genesis 1.28, he says to bear fruit. Then he says, number three, to multiply. So I'm going to write this down. The first is marriage. The second, and the rest of these will all be in Genesis 1.28. The second is to bear fruit. The third is to multiply. Then he said, replenish the earth, which results in subduing the earth. And then last, dominion. You will have dominion. Dominion is not over human beings. It's over the created order or animals, plants, fish. You never are called to have dominion over humans. Uh, that's slavery and that's, that's uh, forced conversions. Christianity is not supposed to be involved in that kind of stuff. So we have six steps that lead to dominion. The first is marriage. The second, he says, is to bear fruit. Uh, now, I know a lot of us when we think of the word bearing fruit, we're thinking of prophesying and evangelism. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew and John and the, the epistles, bearing fruit can mean the gifts. I'm sorry, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. Or it could be winning souls. It could be discipleship. But in this particular context, it's not talking about that. Bearing fruit means to have children. Some would say have children. How do I know it means to have children? Because in the first chapter, every living thing created seed will produce seed after its own kind, right? And so he says to the, to the fish of the sea, bear fruit and multiply. Well, if this is talking about evangelism, that means he's telling the fish to go preach the gospel, right? Uh, when he said to the plants and the trees, he said, produce seed, bear you know, bear, bear seed after your own kind and multiply. He wasn't talking about having people get, having trees get slain in the spirit and getting prophecies. He's talking about reproducing other trees or plants. So when it comes to human beings, it's not talking about prophecy and discipleship or even soul winning at that point. It's talking about having children. So one of the most important things we are called to do is get married and have children. Now, as we read the New Testament, we find that Paul didn't get married, Jesus wasn't married, so they had spiritual children. So the secondary 
meaning of this is spiritual children, as we'll see as I wrap this up. But primary, let's just stay with what hardly anybody preaches. And this is not a message that anybody really hears. You wouldn't have to preach this in a conservative synagogue. The Jews know this well. The Muslims know this well. As a matter of fact, the Muslims know this passage and they practice it whether they realize it or not better than the church does. They have more kids than anybody else. Because of that, they are now taking over Europe. In the next 30 years, 20% of countries like Spain, Italy, France, uh, England will be Muslim. Um, there is a good chance that they will control Western Europe. Why? Because the native Europeans, that is to say the Caucasian French or Italians or the, uh, the Spanish, the uh, English, they are not keeping up with the death rate. When you throw God out the window, you have less kids. The less religious you are, the less children you have. Why? Because when you have God, you're less, less self-centered. You're thinking more of the future. You live a sacrificial life. The more of a heathen you are, the more self-centered you are, and the more you just want to live for now. It's amazing. This is all true. This is all my book. It's sociological data. So when this country throws God out the window, which they're trying to do now, it's no coincidence at the turn of the 20th century, the average American had 6.7 children. Now it's about two to two and a half. You have to have at least two children to keep your population just even. You have to have at least three to grow. And so in France, Germany, England, Spain, Russia, I could go on and on and on, they're only having one child per family the most too. So what is happening? More are dying than are being born. They are disinheriting their own selves because they're falling away from God's original intent. Right? And so what is happening and they have to import Muslims to keep the economy going. It happens to be that most of the people coming into Western Europe are from the Middle East or from North Africa. And they are, a lot of them are Muslim. And so it's not because they're converting Western Europe. It's because Western Europe is dying. They're committing suicide because they are not having children. And if they don't import these people, they will have nobody to pay into the welfare system, the socialist system, the food stamps, hospitalization. They won't be able to pay for all these people who are on entitlement benefits, and their whole nation will collapse. And so if you don't have enough children, you can't even pay for food stamps. You realize that you can't. This country can't pay for Social Security if we don't have enough people paying taxes. So while the, especially the Caucasian folks among us in this country are having one children, child per family, two maybe once in a while, unless you're a Mormon, <laughs> um, you have to have immigration to keep the country going. The African Americans are aborting, listen to this one, for every 1,000 African Americans that are born in this country, I'm not talking about in Uganda and Rwanda, I'm talking about those who live in this country, for every 1,000 that are born, they abort 1,600. It's all sociological data. Uh, I'm not making this up, it's all my book. So they are committing genocide, killing off their people. Matter of fact, 20 years ago, the African Americans made up almost 20% of the population, like 15 or 18%. Now, it's only down to 10%. 30 years, it'll be 5%. Uh, and uh, what's really saving this nation right now is the influx of many... Um, people from Hispanic origin, and thank God most of them have a Christian base. But I'm telling you, um, these countries are committing suicide because they're not understanding the Christian roots of this cultural commission. Uh, and so when people come up to me and they say, oh, 
if I didn't have children, I could be in full-time ministry, or I could be at prayer meetings every night, or I could do so much evangelism. I say to them, are you kidding me? Do you realize your ministry is your children? There's nothing more important than that. You know, we're in a nation, our heroes are people who know how to sing good. American Idol, or they could hit a baseball far, right? No, the true heroes are mothers and fathers. We're paying the price and raising their children in the Lord. That's the most important thing. This is God's calling. This is not a profound, this might be profound, but it's not complicated. This is why you were born, all right? This is the most important things. Uh, and so I tell people, you can't separate yourself from your children. Your children are who you are. Uh, and so there's so much more I could say about this, but I remember it wasn't long ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, France had riots in 200 of their cities, some right outside of Paris, and they couldn't control the riots. Why? Because they were Muslims rioting because they didn't have their way in certain things. And the French have allowed so many Muslims in their country that are not assimilating into their culture. And that's what's going on all over Europe. We don't even know what Europe is in 30, 40 years if they don't turn this thing around. Now, personally, I believe that the Muslim, the ra even the radical Muslims, epitomize what's, uh, what I would call Paul the Apostle before his conversion. Radical, he killed Christians. They're zealous for God, but without knowledge. I believe God's going to turn these people around. He's going to turn them all into Paul the Apostles. So somehow or another, God's going to have his way with the Muslim community. Because they really do, a lot of them, most of them, I don't want to say most of them, I'll say a lot of them, I don't know what the percentage is, love God. They have a zeal for God. And we need to pray. Instead of praying, oh God, don't bring them here. No. Why do we go to all these countries to be missionaries when they're right here? You know, we go to Africa to minister to black people and they, have, they live next door to us. We go to China. We spend thousands of dollars on airplanes to bring Bibles when we have Buddhists all over the place from China and Hong Kong. All right. So here God is bringing them right here. And the Christians are praying, oh, stop them from coming. Stop immigration. Oh, what are you talking about? If you have the truth, go witness to them. Move in the power of God. Move in the gifts of the Spirit. They've never seen anything like it. I remember uh, in, my, in my community, I live right near Borough Park, large Jewish community, maybe larger than all populations except for Jer Jerusalem when it comes to conservative Jews. And they actually will hop in your car if you stop for a light. They'll think that everybody's a Jew and they're going to just get a ride. Uh, they, they just, you know, if you don't lock your doors, they'll just jump right in. So, yeah, I don't want to exaggerate and say it happens every five minutes, but it's, it's common because they're a community. They just think, you know, hey, we're going to help each other, right? So... Uh, one time, he a, a rabbi jumped in uh, one of my worship leaders' uh, car, and we teach everybody, make sure you pray with everybody before they go, if you have the time. So he took the rabbi's hand, him and his wife, and they just prayed, and the power of God came on him, and he began shaking and crying. He said, I, I never, never, ever felt this kind of energy before in my life. And they prayed in the name of Jesus. Right? Nobody told them not to do that to rabbis. So we need to understand that God has called it. I, speaking about rabbis, I remember, you know, I've had people say to me, uh, when I, they say, um, do you have any children? I say, yeah, I have five children. They go, oh, are you crazy? You know, they have this reaction at the amount of children I have. And uh, I've been married for 32 years, and we haven't had one fight. One fight. We've had millions, not one. But anyway, it's a whole other story. So, so I, I tell people I have five kids, and, and they go, oh, you know, there's like a real strong reaction. 
Meanwhile, it's not even the amount of children the average person in America had at the turn of the 20th century. So one time I'm on the phone with a rabbi, and he asked me how many children I have. I said, well, I have five children. There was no reaction at all. So now I'm wondering, how many children does this boy have? <laughs> so about 10 minutes goes by in the conversation, and I said to him, by the way, how many children do you have? He said, I have 11. I go, whoa, are you crazy? I said, how do you do it? He said, well, we don't really go on too many vacations. All our furniture is handed down from one generation to the next, and we save up all our money, and we put each of our children in Hebrew school for at least two years, whether they're going to be a rabbi or not. And that's how they don't lose their children to the world. And he said, and my family is small. He said, the average Hasidic family has 18 children. He said, I know one family has 23. So these folk understand the primary calling they have. The Bible doesn't tell us how many children to have, but it does tell us that having, a children, having children is an honor as opposed to the culture that is what we call antinatal. It's a culture of pleasure, sex, materialism, consumerism. And when we separated sex from marriage in the 1940s through the intellectuals like uh, Dr. Kinsey and others, that opened up the door to legalizing same-sex marriage and all kind of sexual things that used to be taboo. It opened up the door because if you separate sex from marriage and children, there's nothing that'll stop doing whatever you want. And that's a whole nother discussion. So we need to recapture emphasizing marriage, emphasizing children, and we also have to do what's the third thing on this list, and that's multiply. Multiply means that we think generationally. God told us to Adam before he had any children. I want you to multiply. In other words, when he says, I want you to multiply, he's saying, I want you to start thinking of your grandchildren even now. I've been praying for my children since they're old enough to understand what I'm saying. And I lay hands on them, and I'm praying already for their spouse, for their children, for their children's children. I'm putting it in their head to think generationally. When God revealed himself to Moses, he didn't say, I'm the God of Abraham. He said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He revealed himself as a three-generational God. God calls himself the God of a thousand generations, which means that his generations never end. But we can't wrap our brain beyond three generations. But we're called to pass our inheritance to three generations. It tells us in Proverbs 13, verse 21, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Psalm 78 talks about three generations. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do because I go to my father. Three generations. The father's the first, he's the second, third. The third generation is always greater than the last. That's why Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. Our whole life should be preparing our children to what? Have their own children. Be responsible parents. And then to have a children's children's mentality and pass their faith on to their children. So we have to have a three-generational mindset. The, most of the preaching today in this country is all about the false trinity, I, me, my. People go to church so that it can feel good. The messages are how to write your ticket with God, how you can be healed, seven steps to happiness, five steps to fulfillment. It's all about us, us, us. We think the world evolves around us. When the Bible talks about corporate destiny, it's not just individual, and it talks about generations. And we need to understand the greatest thing we could do is pass our inheritance down. This church will never reach its potential while the apostle is alive. 
If it does, he failed. If the greatest influence you have is while you're alive, you failed. We are called to be like Abel. It says in Hebrews 11, being dead, yet he speaks. And the next generation of leaders that's coming out of the loins of this church are going to do greater work. They'll have bigger buildings. They'll have more people. They'll have greater amount of churches they'll plant. They'll have more marriages and families that they will impact. What you guys are doing is a foundational thing. The pastor gave him a church with 16 people. Now you have several hundred. And you're going to have a greater impact in the next generation. See, there isn't anything more important than speaking into young lives. I made up my mind. I have a lot of close friends. I've always been weird. Even as a kid, I, I, I always hung out with older people. When I was 12, I hung out with 16, 18-year-olds. And now a lot of my closest friends are in their 70s. And I made up my mind many years ago that I'm going to spend at least half my time with younger ministers, pouring into them. I've intentionally done that. I have very, very close friends amongst people that are in their 20s, early 30s, that I'm impacting. Why? One is a selfish reason. When I'm older, I want to still have some friends to hang out with. <laughs> I have an uncle. He's 87. He's constantly complaining all his friends are dead. When I'm 87, if I live that long, I want to have 40-year-olds that I'm hanging out with, right? I'm still going to beat them in basketball, too. Praise God. Because if you pour into the next generation, you'll never be lonely. But you'll ensure that they'll do better than you. And so a lot of the preaching today is all self-centered. We're filling churches with I, me, my, pleasure-filled, self-centered messages and some of that is needed. Some of, you know, some of the messages, my God, I need to hear a message sometimes to lift me up, feel good about myself. We've been beat up, beat down and all that. But we also have to combine it with other messages that talk about marriage, family, generations. Can't just get fed candy all the time. Right? And so as we understand, multiply, it's thinking generationally. Number four, Replenish the earth. There's so much more I could say about multiply, I'll tell you. Replenish, one of the Hebrew root words for replenish is sanctify. Which means we're not just having biological children. We are passing our faith down to our children. And we are filling the whole earth up with covenant-keeping children that will what? Sanctify the earth. The word sanctify means to make holy. So the implication is we have so many kids that are bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, filling up every aspect of the earth, not just churches. We should fill businesses, high learning institutions. We should have the greatest scientists, poets, artists, architects, we should have the greatest athletes. We should have the greatest political leaders, entrepreneurs. In other words, replenish means to fill the whole earth up. It means to replenish, refill it. Why did he tell Adam to refill it? Implied there must have been somebody out there before him, which is a whole other discussion, which we're not going to get into. But he's telling him, I want you to take the earth back by thinking generationally. See, it's not just about having Holy Ghost parties on Sunday. God has called this apostle to raise up architects, plumbers, politicians. Why shouldn't the next mayor come from this church? The world should come to us to find out how to do education. A political leader that I'm close to said to me once, we're in so much trouble in this city. I don't know if you read yesterday, there's a $2 billion budget deficit that he's going to leave the next mayor. God bless the next mayor. I was thinking of running until I read that. but that's <laughs> One senator told me a year ago, we have a $4 billion deficit in the state. And he said, we're talking behind the scenes. He said, we don't know what to do. He said, we come off like we know what we're doing publicly because we don't want to cause a panic, but we don't know what to do. He said, it used to be that 
people expected the government to come in and parachute in and save the community. He said, now we need someone to save us. And he said, I want you to help me redesign government. Please, we need the church more than ever. He said, if you give us a dollar, it becomes 50 cents because of all the red tape and bureaucracy and corruption, I might add. He didn't say that. But if you give the church a dollar, it becomes $10 because of all the volunteers that you have. You could do so much with so little. The church is called the salt of the earth, not the salt of the church. Believers are called the light of the world, not the light of the church. We're called not just to bring our communities in the church. We're called to send the church in the community. If you love the community, they'll come in anyway. And so we are called to replenish, by implication, our biological children or also our spiritual children. We train them. We disciple them. We raise them up and send them out and fill every part of the earth. We're called not just to raise up preachers. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 4, again, because of time, I'm going to quote it, write it down, read it. If you don't believe it's there, read it. Ephesians 4, verse 10 to 12. I'll start with verse 11. Your pastor is an apostle. It says, God gave first apostles, then prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Right? That's called the fivefold ministry. Why did God give us these ministers? Not so that they could do the work of the ministry, but it says in verse 12, to equip God's people for the work of the ministry. But now we have to redefine what is the work of the ministry in light of this. We're called to replenish the earth, not just the church or the synagogue, right? So there's a hint of that. Wait a minute, what is the work of the ministry? If, if this is right, if this cultural commission is the most important passage of the Bible which I believe it is, if it unlocks the whole Bible, if it is connected to the whole Bible, if it connects every covenant of the Bible, if it explains the purpose of the church, the cross, the resurrection, the gospel itself, if it explains and unlocks the reason why we had to have Jesus come to begin with, to come to begin with, then it would fit why God gave us apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Why did he give us the fivefold ministry? It would fit what ministry is. So when it says to prepare God's people for the work of the ministry, we have to go back to verse 10 for the context. It says about Jesus. Jesus is the same that descended and ascended above all the heavens. He rose from the dead and ascended. For what? Not so you could go to heaven. You're going to heaven anyway. He ascended above all the heavens so that he may fill all things. Read it. It's in your Bible, Ephesians 4.10. Then it says he gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors. In other words, I'm going to fill all things by raising up the fivefold ministry who are then going to equip God's people for the work of the ministry. What is the work of the ministry? To replenish the earth, to fill the earth. Not just to raise up preachers, but to raise up architects, politicians, economists, musicians, composers. There was a time when the church produced the greatest composers the world has ever seen. We have Bach, we have Beethoven, Handel, uh, you can go on and on and on, Brahms, all these kind of people. The world would sit at the feet of the church who created Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, created Princeton. Why? Because they believed that a Christian was the most qualified to be the president, the governor, the CEO. They believed that the Bible was the queen of all sciences and every science and every study and every discipline would come out of the Bible because we were called to replenish the earth. So therefore, the Bible holds all truth together. And somehow or another, about 150 years ago, we started waiting for the rapture, started looking for the Antichrist. We started thinking about escaping the earth instead of engaging the earth. And instead of Starting universities like Princeton and Yale, we started Bible institutes to teach people how to pray and prophesy, which is good, but we thought that math and science was unspiritual. We are called to recapture that vision of having dominion on all of the earth. Even if you're not called to preach, you're called to be a leader, you're called to be a minister, you're called to influence the world through your biological children and through your spiritual children. Last but not least, 
Oh, we got two more. Replenish leads to subduing the earth. Subdue is a military term, which means to take the weapons of war from your enemies. So when you fill the whole earth up, now you have top leaders who are bringing Christ. We're not just called to win individual sinners. We're called to change systemic sin. See the difference? Individual sinners come to God, but we get enough of them saved, discipled. We put them out into the earth. We subdue the earth. That means we're changing whole systems. Revival brings people in the church. Reformation changes the systems of the world. You catch what I'm saying here. We're called to change the world. Everybody here is called somehow or another. You're called to change the political, the economic part of the world. You know, I, I'm not called to any of that. I'm a simple person. I like to just stay home and read my Bible. No, but you're pouring into your grandchildren. You're pouring into your spiritual children. You're praying for the pastor. You're giving your tithes and offerings. You get into all of you together. There's no such thing as individual destiny. That's an American, uh, that's a, a, an invention. All of us together are changing the world. Not just this local church. This local church is part of many other churches that are together. All of us together are called to fulfill this. Last but not least, after we subdue the earth, then we have dominion. We're called to be the head, not the tail. Above and not beneath, it says in Deuteronomy 28. That's why you're called to own property. Part of dominion is owning property. You don't have dominion if you don't own it. Right? You're going to actually own property. Somebody say, we're going to own property. Praise God. That's amazing. And that's just the first step. So you're beginning to fulfill this in a greater dimension than you ever have. And so, basically, how does this connect to the Great Commission? As I said, this unlocks the whole Bible. The first three parts, marriage, children, and uh, multiply, thinking generationally, connects to Mark 16, verse 15 to 17. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He said, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes not is damned. These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will speak with other tongues. Uh, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. They will pick up scorpions and snakes and it will not harm them. So he's talking about what? Evangelizing, getting people saved, bringing people into his family, right? Well, what is this talking about? This is talking about bearing fruit, multiply. This connects to this part because... They're both expanding God's kingdom and family. They're giving God kids. When I have a child, I'm giving God a child. God is partnering with me. When I have five children, I'm creating spirit beings with God that will love him and serve him. And so the first part of the cultural commission is to add a family to God. That connects with Mark 16. Get him saved. Cast out devils, meaning get them saved, clean them up, disciple them, get them in the, in the church. But what do we do with them after they're in the church? Then we have the last part, which is replenish, take the earth back, subdue dominion. What does that connect to? Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus said to what? Disciple the nations. After we get them saved and healed, then we prepare them and send them out to change the world. We're called to disciple nations. That doesn't mean in the Greek, the word nations is not individual ethnic. It doesn't mean, well, I'm going to witness to a Hispanic person, an African person, an Irish. No, 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 no. The word nation means a whole people group. Jesus said to disciple nations, baptizing them. Baptizing not just individuals, but whole nations. That was fulfilled when the Roman Empire fell. Whole Germanic tribes, the Visigoths, the Goths, all of these Gothic tribes came in. Their leader would get saved. They would baptize the whole tribe. They'd baptize nations. And they set up laws and systems and education through understanding the Bible. We're not called just to win individuals. We're called to disciple whole nations. And that's where replenish, subdue, and dominion. As we end this, let me just give you a quick illustration and then 
I'll pray. All this is in my book, as I said. Just picture this as the world. All right? Let's make believe this is the world. This is creation. In the world, to make it run, you have education, right? What are some other things you need in the world? What? Excuse me? Government or politics, okay? So we have government. What else? We have economics or the economy. We have people. We have science. We have family. We have communities. You get the idea. You have all this stuff, architecture, music, media. Let's put media in there. All right, so this is the world. Now, where's the church been the last 150 years? Church changed their theology, and that's in my book. About 1880, we went from trying to bring the kingdom to the earth to just wanted to make it to heaven as individuals. And now this is the church, the last 150 years. We have a nice little cross on the top and a little building. I don't know how many of you could see this. Maybe we could bring this. Can somebody just bring this out here? I want everybody to see this. It's a powerful illustration. Bring it right here. So we have all of creation and all of the activities in the church for the last 150 years have been in a little building. We have Holy Ghost parties. People are happy because they got prophesied over. They got slain in the spirit. Meanwhile, they wouldn't have got slain in the spirit if they didn't have a nice carpet. But that's a whole other story. And if they do a good job, then what happens is they just add to the building. But they just keep everything in there. Not only that, we have these little buildings all over the place. The next move of God is exploding upon the earth. They are receiving this message. It's turning nations upside down. We're recapturing our call to replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. We're not just raising up preachers. We're raising up psychiatrists, psychologists, professors of history. Haiti doesn't need another evangelist. They need an apostle of government to go straighten out that corruption. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Why shouldn't we put the next mayor in? Why shouldn't we put the governor? You see this whole country going down the tubes. You see the city council throwing churches out of, out of, out of uh, public school. Why? They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're good heathens. Well, we're having our nice little Holy Ghost parties. They're running the world the way they want. And there is always competition between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. They might be nice people, but they're deceived. They're doing what they're supposed to do. If we would do what we're supposed to do, we wouldn't be in this mess to begin with. So we need to have a generational plan. And as we preach the Genesis 128 Cultural Commission, we're going to break out of the walls. And this is what's going to happen. We're going to take every mountain of culture. We're not only going to try to get the community in the church, we're going to send the church into the community. We're going to stop losing our children because, unfortunately, most preachers' kids don't even follow God because... Pastors have sacrificed their children on the altar of ministry. They have separated the work of the kingdom from their marriage. No, your marriage is your ministry. Your children, that doesn't mean that you don't come to church and work hard. No, because if all you did is stay in your house with your wife and your kids, you'll raise up lukewarm, backslidden families. They should see you working hard in church, but they should also see you playing hard at home. Having fun is the key to having a good family. It's one of the keys in praying and seeking God together. I have a lot of stuff in this book. My kids think I'm insane. 
We have so much fun. We, I, I, when they were kids, I threw them around. While my wife was out, I'd be doing full contact martial arts with my oldest son. <laughs> my wife came home once. I had a bloody lip. He had a black eye. So what happened? Oh, well, he fell out. We playing football. And, oh, no, no, no. I got you. We had fun. I treat boys like boys. Let them get hurt. Let them go out and scrape their leg. Problem when sometimes when women raise their kids, they try to mother them too much. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so we have fun in our house. We don't let the TV on during the week. We, mon we you know, monitor what they had in the computer. But, you know, and we pray. We seek the Lord. We read the Bible every night with them. Pray every morning and every night. So, in other words, you have fun, but you disciple them while you're having fun so that they have an emotional connection to fun, not to legalism, not to, oh, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that, don't go to the movies, don't dance, don't listen to the... No, no, you got to replace it with something better. And so, as I close, you guys are called for great, great things. You have an apostle, not just a pastor, but an apostle who understands the marketplace, understands leadership, understands management, understands how to deal with all these people, and knows how to obviously save money and raise money up. And he's going to pass and has been passing that mantle to you. Not everybody's going to be called to be a preacher. Can you imagine, and I, let me say this and finish, can you imagine if an 18-year-old Steve Jobs came into the typical Pentecostal church or a Warren Buffett or a Bill Gates they have a desire to change the world and they go into church and the only thing they're talking about is escaping the earth and the rapture the only thing they're talking about is the next life and they're saying wait a minute wait I have gifts I want to change the world we've lost our greatest leaders most of our kids are not serving the Lord because we're promising them heaven and they've been called to do great things here. The Bible is not a book about heaven. I don't want to shock you. It doesn't really say much about heaven. There's only a few passages about heaven. It's the most practical book about the earth that has ever been written. It talks about eternal life a lot, but eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins on earth. Let's do something with the gifts God has given us.